I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day, Mark Kenny here with this week's Democracy Sausage from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, the School of Politics and International Relations and the Crawford School of Public Policy. Well, Federal Parliament would have been sitting here in Canberra this week were it not for the ongoing crisis in Victoria. Indeed, by now, a whole swag of restrictions that have become normal in 2020 but would seem unthinkable in any other year would be coming off and we'd be able to fly, at least domestically, and do many other things. Instead, we've been given a reminder that even before the Victorian outbreak, the virus had not been beaten so much as held at bay, which is why when it broke out again, the combination of easing restrictions and a misplaced sense of success provided the ideal conditions for a resurgence. One industry that we all love and value, well, all of us except perhaps the government maybe, is the creative sector and in particular the performing arts, music, theatre, films. And we've got an A-list of guests here today to talk to us and give us some insights regarding that much-loved slice of Australia. But before that, let me welcome Dr Maria Tafaga, political scientist, dog owner, director of the Centre for Australian Studies at the School of Politics and author of a chapter in a new book called Morrison's Miracle, which I'll have the privilege of launching later this week. Maria, before we get to the arts in particular, let's you and I spend just a moment on the economy and on the government's framing of it. What have you made of uh, you know the um, the statements that came out last week? We saw the changes to JobKeeper and JobSeeker, long awaited, and then of course we had the uh, what some people called a mini budget, but it's certainly a, a sort of a two year statement of where the finances are. Anything strike you about uh, the way the government's framing this whole economic debate at the moment? Yeah, I, th- I thought it was interesting that they um, chose to um, announce the maintenance or at least the tapering down of. Um, job seeker and job keeper ahead of the um, fairly dire news that we saw on Thursday. Um, I guess, you know, the government, if we, if we just take a step back and we just think about any executive that would be occupying this position right now, like so so regardless of, of ideology just for this second, like the, the, the executive right now faces a situation like a community in which uh, around 50% of the workforce doesn't actually remember a recession or doesn't remember actually being in one, which is a pretty significant kind of uh, like uh, reality bubble um, that is kind of difficult for uh, not only them to kind of uh, communicate uh, to voters, many of which who wouldn't remember what a recession is actually uh, like, but also many of them, uh, as they're on sort of, you know, they're getting a bit younger now, um, might not necessarily remember what the, the recession is like as well. And I think that has been uh, some of the things that has been really obvious to me 
in a very sort of high level way over the last couple of weeks. It's that drip, drip, drip of reality that is sort of sinking in. And that is kind of reflected in the rather dire numbers uh, in which effectively unemployment um, is sort of set to peak at about 10% uh, around December and effective unemployment, which is the combination of those who are actually unemployed, those who have stopped looking for work, and those who are on zero hours, which is actually higher than uh, 10%, which is also likely to come down to 10% by December. So, so the economy is in pretty rough shape. You know, there's one in 10 workers, uh, one in 10 people who are officially unemployed and looking for work, people who have just given up on looking for work, or people who effectively can't work because they can't get any hours and they're basically getting the job seeker subsidy. I did think the the treasurer's um, performance on Insiders was a little strange where he kind of invoked Margaret Thatcher and sort of started to frame the issue of deregulation and reform around reducing the numbers of days lost to industrial action, um, which last year was about 51,000 days, which is like a tiny blip which which in the is ocean. infinitesimally small really i mean industrial disputation is not the problem that it was in the 1970s or the 1980s it is a tiny problem now really oh yeah yeah like to give to give listeners context like the 1970s like not only was australia's population around i don't know between 6 and 8 million but we're talking about like a million days lost and now australia's population is almost three times as large and well, actually, it is, and we're talking about fifty-one thousand days. So, I, I mean, I don't know. What did you make of that? You know, is that is that just red meat to the base? Well, I think it probably was. I mean, I have my own theory about that because he did mention uh, Reagan and Thatcher at the press club on Friday as well, ahead of that insider's address, and that did raise some eyebrows, although he wasn't specifically questioned on it. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm thinking about it. And I think, well, look look at it from this. Look at it this way, right? The government has is guided by this kind of conservative uh, you know, mindset, this conservative ideology. That's that's the way it sees itself. That's how it identifies. Um, it's pro-market, small government, all those sorts of things. It comes into office, uh, somewhat of a surprise, at the last election, doesn't really have much of an agenda besides delivering some tax cuts and and um, and not being Labor, really. And then this thing hoes into view and suddenly the whole political landscape is transformed. The economic task is absolutely turned on its head and a bunch of small government uh, kind of, you know, sort of neo-Friedmanites almost are turned into the biggest Keynesians you could imagine. I mean, they are spending like no one's had to spend before. Uh, the, the government, the state has had to step in to prop up market failure. And in a sense, there is no choice. I mean, even the, um, the finance minister, Matthias Cormann, a very dry figure economically, used those very words. What choice did we have? They didn't have any choice. That let's be clear. But it's created, I think, a huge identity problem for them, or at least a conundrum that might be a better way of putting it. And so I think there's this kind of – these rhetorical clothes are being brought out of the, of the closet, um, the mention of Reagan and Thatcher, uh, to, to, to essentially cloak what, what are a range of policies that, if they were being done by Labor in office, would be the subject of the most, uh, you know, vicious kind of uh, ridicule. This would be excessive state intervention, typical Labor spending forever, plunging the country into in intergenerational debt and so forth. The truth is both sides of politics accept that they need to do this, uh, but I think the, the conservative side is having trouble sort of explaining it to itself and uh, invoking these lodestars of, of, of conservative recent history, or well, not that recent to be honest, but uh, you know Reagan and Thatcher makes the base feel better about you know this idea that this is the governing ideology. In truth, those two conservatives were divisive figures. Uh, they were successful figures as well electorally, and they you know they did some good things. But um, you know they were both known for having let, let's put it in these terms shit fights with the um, with the union movement. Um, you know we know Reagan had a, a massive fight with air traffic controllers, and of course Thatcher's uh, um, you know uh, winter of discontent. Uh, Winter of discontent, you know the the coal strikes, the the you know the divisions, the, essentially the gutting of uh, of a lot of those northern towns of 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 Britain, which are um, you know perhaps 
have, have never really recovered and perhaps you know helped fuel the, the sort of Brexit uh, pro Brexit resentment still. So, I mean, th- these were these are divisive figures and hated on the on on the left, uh, and yet there we have the treasurer invoking them and uh, I, I found it interesting and that's about the only explanation I can put forward for it. That, that does actually sound more convincing because I, I remember being really very puzzled because the, the nature of the problem uh, Thatcher faced in particular, uh, similar to the one Reagan was facing but far more acute in the UK, was was kind of the exact opposite of the kind of problem we we have now. I mean, she was facing massive risings, rises in inflation because of an inability to control wages, uh, which was sort of driven by the actions of, of unions and uh, effectively stagflation. Um, and so, so the the you know pulling money out of the economy was definitely one way of of dealing with that and, and reducing wages and putting a clamp on 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 wage claims whereas you know the, the the problem facing the government now is actually it's got a real problem with uh, both supply and demand um and so i just thought it was a really sort of potentially very alarming um flag to raise for the ordinary voter even if i think you are right like in speaking to the sort of i guess the true believers within the party room um that you know potentially would be kind of comforting uh, at a time where the government is very clearly listening to the latest economic advice which has moved on an awful lot from thatcher's day you know like thatcher's day was the height of monetarism in which it was basically argued that the state should not be involved uh, much in the economy except for controlling interest rates and cutting interest rates and cutting taxes uh, would would be enough to sort of stimulate the economy. And we kind of know that that's just like an extreme, uh, you know, at one end of a pole compared to Keynesianism at the other, which was all about pump priming to keep the economy going to maintain high employment. Mm. And and it is fascinating, just to just stay on this for just a couple of seconds longer, it is fascinating also when you uh, c- consider the political opportunity or problem, however you want to construct it, that exists at the moment. We've seen a thaw in the relationship between the ACTU and the coalition in government, better relations than we've seen in in, in decades, perhaps ever, uh, with the ACTU and the and the government actually you know, talking cooperatively, we know there are these five working groups that uh, that are looking at a range of things. There's been uh, great flexibility in the labour market introduced in response to the COVID uh, crisis and to you know the the introduction of job keeper. Um, and so this goodwill needs to be capitalised on. It it just seems like a bizarre idea to be trying to capitalise on that goodwill by invoking. You know the two figures, which uh, which to unions represent uh, a, a sort of a basically a a um, an extreme position. You know, a, a wartime situation, really, in terms of industrial relations. Yeah, I mean, they have sort of signalled that you know deregulation is going to be their solution to sort of um, you know boost the economy. Uh, it's not really clear to me what this really means, and uh, from what I understand of the sort of productivity. Uh, data in Australia, like its deregulation is uh, not really the the driving issue uh, that is probably of concern. It's probably actually several factors working um, together that um, is a problem with productivity. And let's just face the fact that we had a big rise in wages because of the mining boom, but no necessarily lift in productivity. And so, you know, that's another one of the reasons why wages have been depressed for the past um, decade. But I guess the final thing I'd like to say before we move on to talking about the impact on the arts sector is that uh, Parliament was supposed to sit to, uh, this week, just as you said, Mark. Um, and I think it is actually really disappointing and we should be talking about the fact that Parliament has been cancelled yet again. And uh, not only um, is it disappointing that Parliament, which is our representative body that holds our government to account, which should be held to account at a time of extraordinary decision-making and extraordinary circumstances, but if everyone else has to learn how to work differently I think that the Parliament has now had five months to work out how to meet differently. If they can do it in the United Kingdom where the circumstances were far more dire, I don't really see why we we couldn't have found a solution to do that here. And it's particularly disappointing because uh, there is a bit of a pattern from this government of cancelling Parliament. And I was a bit hopeful because they had actually scheduled a very high number of days, um, but we're, we're now losing them again. 
Yes, that's a very good point. Although uh, I, I think it probably should be uh, also acknowledged that there'd be a few people in this jurisdiction in the ACT in the Queanbeyan region where you are, um, Maria, who are pretty happy that there isn't a, a large influx of MPs from around the country yeah, and their staff at the moment. <laughs> that, that's true. That's very true. There are ways of doing it and that's what they're doing in the UK. They've got some people in the chamber and they've got some people back in their constituencies and they're asking questions during Parliament, uh, Prime Minister's question time and, um, and, and involving themselves in the process. So yes, it shouldn't be beyond the wit of our uh, Parliament to do so. And if it is beyond the wit of our Parliament to do so, what does that say well, about God us? God help us all. <laughs> God, indeed. Now, let's bring in our panel. David Wenham is a household name as an Australian film and TV actor, as well as a writer, producer and director, and he's been in too many big productions to list off. So I'm delighted to welcome him to Democracy Sausage. David, how are you going in this age of uncertainty? Uh, I'm going. I'm going. Uh, good to be with you. I've been, yeah, privileged to be on Democracy Sausage. Well, we have been talking about it uh, for some time, and I'm I'm just so grateful that we could uh, finally um, get to speak to you and and get a, a sense from you as to um, how the uh, how your industry, particularly from your perspective, uh, is um, has been affected by this. Uh, particularly because there's a real juxtaposition between what's happened, a real contrast, I should say, between what's happened to the industry and Australians' reliance on the industry to get through this difficult time. And I guess we'll come back to that. Um, Caroline Stacey is the Artistic Director and CEO of the Street Theatre, Canberra's leading theatre company, which is well known to Canberrans, of course, and is located really on the fringe of the ANU, in between the ANU and the city where the two things meet. Uh, Caroline, welcome to you. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here with everybody. Always wanted to be on Democracy Sausage, so <laughs> <laughs> just to tell people, you know. <laughs> well, you've already passed the audition, if that's any use to you, <laughs> just by the fact that you can talk. Uh, <laughs> And Tracy Bourne, I should say, Dr. Tracy Bourne, uh, who is a uh, an actor and a director of the stage and an independent theatre maker. Um, lovely to have you on here, Tracy. Thanks very much for having me. So I think we've got uh, a, a good spread of um, of uh, kind of national and and, and geographical and um, in, sort of industrial engagement here or engagement in the sector here. David, perhaps I could start with you bit of a, a sort of a, a wide open question, I guess, but what, what do you think the mood of the industry is as far as you see it at the moment? Uh, and, and, and perhaps, I don't know whether you can, but you may be able to talk for it even internationally, but certainly uh, amongst the, you know, your colleagues and um, contemporaries here in Australia. Well, I think the mood is probably slightly more optimistic than it was um, when COVID initially hit, because when it did hit, um, film production and television production right around the world uh, closed down completely. And in Australia, everybody involved in the film industry, but of course they go from contract to contract. Yeah. None of them, none of those workers were eligible for JobKeeper. So there's, <laughs> you had a whole heap of people extremely concerned about where their income was going to come from. And just to give you an example there, I just spoke to somebody who was uh, working on a big American production in Sydney. And the caterers working on that production, it was only early in the production when COVID hit, they had just bought five trucks in order to feed 1,400 people every day. So they bought the trucks, they had the food, then COVID hit, and they had no income whatsoever to deal with um, the outgoings that were necessary to, to continue. So it was a dire situation. What's happened now, though, is because we're relatively fortunate in Australia, I suppose, except for Victoria, and hopefully that does improve soon, we're seen internationally as a relatively safe place to film at the moment. So a lot of those crew members who are instantly out of a job have found themselves um, in the first place um, doing a lot of commercials here in Australia, a lot of American commercials that have been done via Zoom, actually, directors in Los Angeles directing Australian crews um, for uh, American advertising purposes. So that's one of the first sort of uh, points of entry back into the workforce for a lot of crews. But the thing that has hit hard, I suppose, culturally is Australian films, Australian films and television. Um, it is. <laughs> I don't know when that's going to come back. 
It it strikes me that I mean, as you say, a lot of those people weren't eligible for JobKeeper because there's a uh, because of the way the the sector is structured. People go from job to job, from contract to contract, and many of those contracts uh, go nowhere near twelve months, and so that was the reason they weren't eligible. Um, is it also true to say though that even though they they are part of what we could call the precariat, people whose whose um, Purchase on the on the on the workforce is inherently precarious. Is it also true to say though that for those who are actually making their living out of it, they've got a reasonable idea of what they're going to be doing over the next twelve months, even though they might not have signed all of those contracts or whatever. But you you know if you if you're you know able to discern an income from um, earn an income from uh, from the sector, you've got a sense of what you're doing, and that sense may now just be completely gone. I, I think talking from a um, a crew perspective, that's that's different from the um, from from an actor, or a director, or a writer. But the technicians who work on film and television productions, that is that is true. They can book up, you know, a production or two ahead, so they've got a fairly good idea of what they're going to do for the next six, possibly even twelve months ahead. Um, but that certainty has just completely been taken away from them. And from a creative's perspective, that's the writers, the actors, the directors, um, there is just, well, there's, it's always been precarious, but there is n- not much of a light ahead in the tunnel at the moment for specifically Australian productions. Um, the government announced um, a, a package, I think, last week for the film industry which was very welcome. It was $400 million over seven years, very welcome. But the surprising thing about that package, I suppose, was that $400 million is specifically to attract foreign productions to the shores of Australia. It probably would have been a wiser decision and a better use of money to say, okay, out of that $400 million, $300 million can be for foreign businesses to come in here, for the studios to come in here and make films for, you know, world, worldwide consumption. But $100 million is going into specifically local productions to tell our stories for both the people here in our community, but also then to take our stories internationally. I thought that probably would have been a better use of $400 million as it is that's going to give a lot of people a lot of work here, and that is certainly welcomed. But in terms of um, the cultural landscape, it it's just not adding anything to it, and it's leaving a lot of um, creatives in the film industry um, scratching their heads. And Tracy, that uh, $400 million over seven years, I mean, that's a long time frame, and th- th- our problem isn't a seven-year problem, hopefully. It's uh, it's an immediate problem in this sector in particular. Um, you want to get things happening soon. You want to give people the, the the hope that you know when we get past this immediate crisis phase, which we have unfortunately sort of lapsed back into, uh, given what's happening in Victoria. But you want to give people hope that th- there is a future for them and that there mm-hmm. will be activity in this sector uh, uh, as soon as can possibly be arranged. Not so much four or five years from now. Yeah, and I I think it. It seems to me as though the the pressure and the risk is back on to the independent artists, really, which it, it has been for a while. And the government also in June um, had a $250 million package, which is, um, again, really, really great, but it in, involves a lot of loans, which mm. is not necessarily useful for medium to small scale companies. And there's some show starter um, money for productions and tours but really independent artists that are in the the original gig economy are the ones who are really unsure about what where their money is going to come from and and this has come on the back of years decades really of cuts to the Australia Council that um, means that there's been a kind of whittling away of that money and there, there is a four-year Australia Council uh, program funding that came out just before the COVID uh, impacts really hit. And there were a third of 
um, really serious theatre companies that were defunded, including La Mama, which has been operating for 50 years. And La Mama is a theatre company that's set up to support new work, writers, actors who are who are sometimes at the beginning of their careers but sometimes in the middle, in between doing TV or film gigs. And that kind of on-the-ground work is is what fuels the sort of bigger-name productions and the bigger-name actors. You know, youth theatre companies have just been decimated. So in terms of feeding talent from the beginning, um, the industry's really, um, from the ground up, it's really, uh, yeah, people are feeling down. <laughs> yeah. Caroline, uh, the street theatre, um, you closed on, I think, March 14, so uh, that would have been a, a pretty sad day and not knowing what happened. Tell us about where you're at at the moment. Right. So <clears throat> you're correct. We we um, actually had a show in production. It was the final nights and we closed on that night and immediately uh, we went into cancelling six months worth of work, uh, as well as looking at work we'd committed to and how to postpone that, looking forward into 2021-2022. There was a lot of um, time taken refunding tickets and and really connecting with audiences and and really beginning that narrative in terms of how do we keep keep everybody connected at a time where, uh, you know, we're all in isolation. Very quickly, obviously, um, federal government rolled out a number of initiatives, um, literally about three in, a, in the space of about two weeks as it became apparent that uh, we were um, under crisis. And for the street, which is a medium-sized organization, turnover of about $1.5 million, um, but responsible for artists, creative artists and arts workers in the ACT because we're producing work. We were able to access the um, Boosting Cash Flow Initiative, which has been critical and has made an absolute difference to uh, um, our uh, financial um, capacity. What, what is the Boosted Cash Flow Initiative? So literally you get credits through the um, ATO activity statements and and tax owed is is basically returned to you. You report on a monthly basis, uh, but in order to access that, many organisations had to have the capacity to uh, it, it, to understand where their finances finances were at and what they could actually bankroll in the sort of um, six weeks prior to that coming in. Uh, and that scheme um, is certainly ongoing uh, through to uh, September and part of these tapering initiatives as well. We were also able to access JobKeeper. It took a lot, a little bit more time to work that out. Um, and obviously we looked at um, permanent staff, casual staff, uh, and um, creatives, arts workers that were connected to the organisation and uh, tried to do as much as we could um, within our capacity. That has been um, fundamental to, to the street being able to engage with the principle of activity, which is that we did a complete rebudget, obviously, um, and um, but within that rebudgeting, you know, committing to employing artists, uh, development work, it became very clear to us very quickly that live production and live performance was uh, a, a very dynamic space to be working in uh, and that it was unlikely we would be able to do much work uh, in 2020. And indeed, really, with the second lockdown, we made the decision not to do any major work this year because uh, it's too uncertain for us as, a, as an organisation. So it, we've we've had to develop strategies to be able to keep activity going, keep connected to audiences. We've definitely moved into the live streaming space. So we've done theatre production, music work um, that had been live streamed and we've moved into hybrids. We actually had our first live performance and live stream on Saturday night. There were lots of tears um, in the audience, the 50 people that went into our 300-seater um, and amongst the performers and the, the television crew that were there. We remembered liveness, um, but also, you know, the the monetizing of that live stream space is, is a 
critical component to how to keep live performance accessible to to everyone. And and I feel like that's a really um, interesting, fascinating and growth creative space for everyone. Let's take a quick break there and be back in just a moment. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, before the break, we were talking about the uh, impact on theatres. David, what's it been like for you, uh, you know, not wanting you to give away trade secrets or whatever, but um, has it involved an immediate, you know, like an immediate loss of work or a loss of contracts or or, or, uh, or that kind of thing for you? Well, the last time I, I worked um, in front of a camera or on a film set was last December. Um, when I finished shooting an Australian film uh, called, um, oh God, what was it called? <laughs> I'll come back to you on that. It, it changed its name so many times. That can happen. Anyway, the chameleon will yeah, call that's it. Yeah, right. that's right. Well, I, I finished uh, yeah last December, so I haven't worked at all this year. I was um, due to work on a Netflix series shooting in Vancouver, and I was – Two days um, away from getting on a fly, uh, plane to go to Vancouver and begin production, and that's when they decided that the COVID situation had got um, so dire that production was immediately halted. So I'm still attached to that production, and because of the situation worldwide, the producers are now seriously considering um, shooting that series here in Sydney in uh, November to April, which would be very nice because mm. it's my hometown. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, so that, that that's my situation. At the best, I'll, you know, it'll be a year between um, gigs for me. And I'm in a situation where that's financially, that's okay because, you know, I have a little bit of savings and I can get through and I can pay the school fees, et cetera. Um, but there's a lot of pe- uh, people who are in a similar situation that obviously won't be able to do it as relatively easily as I will. That's not to say that I'm not itching to get back and and create because I am. Um, yeah, that's my, not my yeah. personal situation. Yeah, and have you – look, this is perhaps on a more positive note. Have you – and I'd be interested in all of your views on this – how have you seen the what what to me and I hope this isn't an exaggeration but what seems to be an almost spontaneous explosion of creativity that we've seen on the internet through various social media platforms we've seen some terrific comedy obviously about Donald Trump and various things like that but uh, but also just uh, the, you know short filmmaking that people have been doing and you know whether it be on TikTok or or whatever right? and and uh, just the, there seems to be a kind of a almost like a kind of a cultural rebound from the population uh, in response to the deprivation of not being able to go out and go to theatre and, and 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 go to the cinema and so forth. Um, perhaps you, Tracy. Yeah, and I think too, artists have been. Um, I mean, artists are creative people, mm. and I think have been interested in how to keep working and keep making work and. My sense has been that people are using the time where they can to write or dream up new work and not know when that's going to happen. There's a, you know, you have to be optimistic to some extent to work as an artist because there's, there's no, there's, there's no certainties. So 
so yeah, I think there there has been there's also been a kind of push against that which has been um, about um, being ca- artists feel as though we have to be careful about offering free work because you know then you're there's a perhaps there's a sense that we can just it's a hobby and you know you just you can give your work away from for free and it's a great opportunity we're always being asked to do stuff because it's a good opportunity welcome to my world i mean that journalists <laughs> do that as well uh, you know um a lot of work for free really um and uh, yes you sometimes question it wonder whether that is industrially speaking the right thing to do but i mean we've all uh, seen uh, jimmy barnes putting yeah. songs on twitter or whatever and, and it's very uplifting when um, you know you're reading reading a lot of you know negative headlines and uh, the news is all pretty dire um to have someone that you that you know and uh, and you know doing something sitting in their lounge room providing some some mm. little concert it's, it's it, these are beautiful things but as you say it's not no one's getting paid for it look well it's not sustainable essentially mm. uh, it, it's Look, uh, as both Tracy and David have said, it, we are fundamentally, I mean, theatre, um, screen work, performance is by nature. It's about gathering and connecting. And we do that very well. And it's also about narrative. You know, there are, there are, there, are, we want to tell Australia's story to the world and we want to tell our stories to each other. And the stats show um, Australia Council and Pattern Makers have done uh, – have got an ongoing study this year. 73% of people are experiencing art and culture online. Uh, 54% are engaging online more frequently during the pandemic. Um, however, 36% only have paid for an online experience. Mm. Um, and – I guess the, the, the there's been so many yeah beautiful moving profound moments, but actually you know our job at this point in time is to is to imagine the future and and to carve out what needs to be done to make that future happen. And obviously, what's happened with the pandemic has has really shown us that the the sort of schisms and in the cultural sector and actually this this online space is everybody is talking about how to monetize it and actually the value you put on liveness versus the value you put on um that online space and creatively for myself and certainly what our company has been exploring is the spectrum from cinematic storytelling to live performance storytelling and what what lies in that space in between in between creatively and I I, I think it's here to stay it is the future of theatre performance it is fantastic that it, it provides access and reach in a way that if you're working in the regions you might not have had that reach internationally before now you do have so there are there are many things that are coming out of this time that are actually incredibly exciting. But on a fundamental... But that question about how you monetize it, how you actually make it into something that uh, is, is is valued and, and people are remunerated appropriately, that's... I mean, because that's been a challenge in journalism as well with the rise of the internet, of course, mm. the, um, you know, the, the free flow of information, uh, people wanting to read things for free online, uh, you know, how do you monetize it? That industry has, has not got on top of that yet so it's hardly surprising that uh, the creative sector is now facing this as well um it's there's no easy answers here maria do you think that's um like one of the big challenges here and and particularly the prospect that there'll be a number of people who have been in this precariat for a long time and who will have just simply been you know this will have been the last straw for them i mean it was bad enough before going from contract to contract and not you know not making a huge huge living out of it uh, but then they you know they're faced with this 6 months 12 months whatever it is without any certain income or any income at all uh, some of those people presumably just lost to the sector for good yeah, I mean, I have I have a couple of friends in the arts and entertainment industry, uh, and so obviously this is um, anecdotal kind of um, stories. And and some of these people left the industry uh, a few years ago uh, and went back to law firms, uh, for example, because it is it is difficult um, to sort of live uh, 
from sort of week to week, not really knowing when you're going to get work. But listening to all of you guys, it sort of seemed to me that there's actually like an additional kind of layering problem for your sector in in particular because it's not only that there's um, no prospect of uh, a lot of work right now, but like given the sort of multi-stage production processes that are involved in your industry, it could be the case that there's actually a whole cohort of people who actually have to wait many months even after the system reopens to actually get any work. And so the period that they may be out of work may be sort of substantially um, longer. And, you know, I could sort of see that returning to another industry or returning to a different skill set or simply retraining and exiting would be more attractive than, you know, holding on to what is, um, you know, a, a kind of slightly more romantic uh, lifestyle that is a bit more precarious. Um, is, is, is that sort of where people are, who you work with uh, are at? Or is that is that just my couple of mates? No, I think that's, I think you're exactly Tracing right. It. Sorry to interrupt. I no, think no, exactly no, I'm just, right. I was just making sure that everyone knew who was talking. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I've got a friend and colleague who um, is a – she's um, in her middle years, let's say, and um, she's a rare rare thing because she's been making a living from working in theatre um, all of her adult life and she is recently, just before the pandemic, awarded an OAM and she's despairing because she feels as though, you know, s- still she's struggling, well, again, really, to pay her mortgage. Does her son want braces? Will her son need braces? You know, those sort of basic cash anxieties we all have. But this is on the back of um, of, of really struggling more and more each year because uh, she's she's worked internationally, she's worked in theatre, but she's not a household name. So she's... She's someone who has worked constantly in the middle of the scene, if you like, um, and she feels as though it's not just that there's not much of a prospect of work for a long time and who knows when it will come come back again, but there's a sense that her work and is not valued. It's valued in that she got an OAM, but her work as a senior artist is not valued. She goes into the next theatre production and she gets paid often the same amount as someone who's young and in their 20s and it's because there's so little money really to go around that that her her senior experience there's not space for it if you like mm. david i saw at the end of a story on the sunday night abc news yesterday uh and regrettably i didn't see the start of it but it it looked like it was covering some of this um this subject matter that we're covering here today you know the the what's happened to the sector particularly what's happened to a number of production companies uh, theaters and the like um it it actually showed a uh, one, one example though of a company in Japan which has actually been worse hit than Australia uh, which has kept going right through. It has kept its, uh, it's been playing to, I'm not sure what the play is, uh, the work is, but it's been playing to full houses pretty well every night and it has continued right through this COVID period. They've had various protocols for hand washing going in there and, and the like, but they, they haven't had any problems, uh, with, uh, with community transmission, uh, we, we, we're told. And, uh, you know, that obviously raises the question, have we perhaps, were we too eager to shut down this industry? What's your sense of that? Oh, that's a tricky one, Mark, um, <laughs> especially considering that Tokyo now, the, the numbers there are going up again. I don't know where that, that company was actually based. Uh, Korea, um, actually Korea. Oh, was it Korea? Korea, yes. was it? Oh, yes. there you go. Right. So, um, I, like I said, I was I was cooking and sort of half caught the story. That's right. Yeah. Geography goes out the window, not a problem. Um <laughs> Oh, that, that's that's a really tricky one. I think you're damned if you do and damned if you don't at the moment. Um, I'd hate to be um, in a leadership position making decisions there about what should and shouldn't close. Yeah. Um, but it, I think um, I only saw a snippet of the news bit last night actually and there's a theatre production in South Australia. South Australian theatre company are, are doing the first production in Australia that has an audience and they're moving ostensibly what would have been in something like a 400-seater into a much larger theatre so the audience can be socially distant and whatever and that's how they're going to get around it. And I think they probably can get away with that in South Australia because the community transmission is, you know... Well, they haven't had zero. they haven't had any for 100 days, I think. Well, there you go, mm. yeah. So I think it's relatively, you know, it's a safe uh, venture there. 
Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a tricky question there, Mark, in terms of opening or closing. Yeah, but, but, it, but I, I know the independent theatre, uh, independent cinema owners in Australia, um, they're all panicking because these are, you know, the mum and dad theatre owners in country towns and whatever all, yeah. all around the country who haven't been able to open their cinemas to get bums on seats. Now, they're going to be in a pretty precarious situation, I think, unless uh, content starts to come their way. Actually, if I could just talk from an employer's perspective, uh, there are um, certainly uh, we know the audience sentiment in Australia is that about 28% of the population are ready to attend a theatre as soon as they're permitted. And again, this is the uh, COVID-19 audience outlook monitor uh, that is a, a joint project between Australia Council and Pattern Makers. Um, however, about 72% do intend to go back to the theatre, but not really before uh, 2021. And so the appetite is there. People want to return. And not surprisingly, Northern Territory is the state with the most demand to go to live theatre. And New South Wales, uh, ACT and Victoria have the, the least, um, uh, the least amount of uh, audience that are, um, wanting to attend immediately. As an employer, uh, you know, I certainly have a duty of care to all my staff mm -hmm. um, and to those creative artists that are working on a project and and to anybody really that enters the building. And obviously, I mean, I don't know if people out there know, but to deep cleanse any building, is it costs about $15,000 and you cannot get insurance for it. So anything you do, <laughs> you, you, you know, is impactful um, financially, but also for me in relation to artists working together, it, those people that would be negatively impacted by catching COVID in that their lung capacity is diminished and, you know, the very worst of that situation, um, it, it could end a career. And so, Can I just? Yeah, so I'm very mindful of that space. Jump in, David. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought I'd just sort of yeah jump in again there with the, the theatre. Um, I asked Mitchell Butel, who is the artistic director of the South Australian Theatre Company, is a is a very close friend of mine, and I asked him um, a number of weeks ago. I thought, what did what did um, the the theatres do in the West End and Broadway during the pandemic of the early nineteen hundreds? And he didn't know off the top of his head, so I looked it up, and what the West End did. All the theatres in the West End during the pandemic, they didn't close at all. The only thing they did at interval of every show, they kicked all the audience out onto the street and opened all the doors just so they could get a little bit of fresh air through. Then the audiences <laughs> all pile back in again and the show would go on. <laughs> and, wow. David, there, is, I, there are stories I, that go back to the plague, the bubonic plague, the theatres in, in London in the 17th century that are quite similar. Mm. Yes, but I, of course I don't think the, we should follow suit, though. I no, no, because the the, the uh, rather um, rather poorly named Spanish flu epidemic didn't end well. Uh, no. <laughs> I, uh, look, the audience indicators are telling us that that uh, there are sort of six indicators that people are really looking at, and one of them is the safety measures that that spaces have in place. And if you don't have the capacity as a as a space to um, to set up those measures in a way that that people feel safe, then they're they're actually not going to go. And of course, you know, culturally, uh, the, the Australia is very different to um, Korea, is very different to France, is very different to the UK. So, you know, one of the the issues around the pandemic is, is actually how it impacts on. Um, the diversity of artists that continue to be employed and also the diversity of audiences that come to the theatre. And and we, we know that those that are more vulnerable, um, its accessibility issues are going to be really present. So these are, these are all factors that are at play as you make some quite complex decision-making. David, what about uh, the, the economics of the industry from the point of view of films? I mean, I, I know you're not necessarily a, a sort of a film economist here, but um, uh, those those productions that uh, would you know that 
movies, particularly out of Hollywood, you know, they they um, they all fit into a kind of a you know, judgments are made about when it's best to release them, uh, both for you know maximising audiences and Academy nominations and those sort of things, but uh, but also you know there, there, there are huge investments associated with uh, with you know those big films. Um, and the release date of them and, uh, you know, how well they do in the box office is a critical factor there. What do, you, what do they do when there's no prospect of, of a box office, at least in the traditional sense? I mean, this must have caused a, a, a fair bit of, uh, rethinking of some of those investments. I, I think so. I think there'd be a lot of people chewing their nails, um, specifically in studios in Hollywood. Um, because the only alternative they've got at the moment, and there's a number of huge films that are just waiting to be released, the only option they've got is to actually release them online at the moment um, via video on demand. But that, you know, potentially, um, potentially could make it just wouldn't be as financially viable. So they're obviously hedging their bets and just waiting and hoping that um, the day will come soon that um, cinemas will be able to open again. Um, if, if I can say just one thing on specifically on, on the Australian film industry, like COVID is, has had a, it's had a devastating effect on our industry. And it's great that, um, the government's put money into attract foreign films here for us all to work on. That's terrific. But I think the biggest thing coming up for our industry is a decision that's going to be made at some time before the end of the year. And that's the decision of Australian content on television. The government at the moment has suspended um, Australian content quota for the moment, for the time being. Hopefully it'll be lifted soon. But they're going to decide before the end of the year if they're going to put a, a content quota on our streamers. You know, that's your Netflix, your Amazon, your, your Prime, your Apple and whatever. If there is deregulation there, you can effectively say goodbye to the Australian film and television industry in one fell swoop. We need to have at least a 10% um, Australian content quota for those uh, for, for television and for our streamers. It provides an incredible amount of work for thousands and thousands of people in Australia. It, puts, it will put a lot of money into the business and therefore boosts the economy as well. It's a really important um, moment, I think, in the film and television uh, industry's history coming up. Yes, I think that's a, a very important point to make. And let's conclude on that point. Uh, it's been great having you all with us here, spending some time at the barbecue hot plate, Tracy Bourne, Caroline Stacey, David Wenham, and of course, our very own star of screen and page, Maria Teflaga. <laughs> oh, wow. I'll be back. I'll be back later in the week with Democracy Sausage Extra, uh, and I'll talk to you then. But again, thank you to all of you for uh, for being here with us today, and it's been really terrific to uh, to have you on Democracy Sausage. Thanks, great to be here. Yeah, thanks very much. Bye. Thank you. Good on you, Mark. Thank you. Bye bye. 